Hello, Will. Uh, welcome to another episode of In Light. This is a special episode. So tell us something about the season. What happened? Yeah. <laughs> well, technically, season one is over. But, you know, the Canadian federal election, election 44, is in a week today. But when this video is released, probably in a few days, September 20th. And, uh, you know, we saw a couple other podcasts, some other discussion, but we were like, you know what, we need to do one. We owe it to our viewers. Uh, We know we have a lot of newcomer viewers, first-time voters, and immigration and Indigenous issues uh, especially have have sort of fallen off the forefront. So we wanted to Mm -hmm. talk about them. There's always uh, subset issues that we need to tease out uh, from all these wonderful podcasts. So we thought it would be a wonderful opportunity to bring in three wonderful guests today to actually talk about those issues. Uh, But first of all, before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that I am in the traditional territories of the Mawekma Wumwuk and Yokuts of the San Joaquin Valley. And I am on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tooth, and Kaikat Nations here in Burnaby, British Columbia. And as Will mentioned, immigration issues have largely been overlooked during this election cycle, election 44. And the talking heads, essentially on TV, have focused, and rightly so, on you know key issues that are preoccupying a lot of Canadians' minds, such as COVID, COVID relief, building back better, as they say, and essentially just recovery from all the things that have happened in the year and a half. Absolutely. But all these things are also interrelated. So, you know, whether it be climate change or it be COVID, there are a lot of these issues that intersect directly with immigration. For example, climate change is going to create a, a new generation of individuals seeking to come to Canada because of the climate uh, issues that uh, their home countries. For example, COVID has led to delays that have really separated a lot of families. And, and you know, we hear from one of uh, those individuals today on our show as well. So I think it's really important that we talk about the, the two issues of Indigenous issues and immigration issues, because they have been the most overlooked at a time when there's been huge impacts uh, felt by Canadians on both issues. The next issue that we'd like to talk about would be, uh, you know, essentially going through the sponsorship process, the family class applications and the processing delays and the hurdles that uh, a lot of folks would have to go through in order to get their loved ones to Canada in the time of COVID when a lot of these uh, concerns were highlighted and actually aggravated and made worse. I think that conversation needs to happen. And what about our third guest, Andrew? Let's talk about him. Yeah, so after Brooks and Cassandra, our third guest today is Andrew Griffith. And Andrew is a policy advisor, a writer, a blogger. He was the former director general of IRCC. So uh, an individual with just so much wealth of knowledge, uh, done a lot of research. Uh, we're going to share some of his information with everyone so he can help inform your vote. And he's going to present the different party platforms. And I think, uh, you know, Steve Murins, we're coming after your podcast. <laughs> but, uh, you know, <laughs> we wanted to do our, our version as well. Of uh, and I love Chantel. So that was an, an incredible episode. We're doing our own version as well with Andrew Griffiths. And without further ado, I'd like to welcome our first guest. And Brooks Arkanpal is a litigator based out of Edmonton, whose practice includes Aboriginal employment, corporate commercial law, with particular expertise in First Nation matters. His experience with treaties gives him a strong foundation and appreciation for comprehensive negotiations and agreements. And he has appeared before the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench and the Provincial Court of Alberta. He's a dear friend of mine from law school. We've been friends for years now, and it is my pleasure to welcome him to our show. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Brooks. Uh, Why don't you go and give our viewers a little bit of an intro about yourself? 
Atante ni tika son sipsis Good morning, everyone. Good afternoon. Uh, greetings from wherever you are. My name is Brooks Arkham Paul. I am currently in-house legal counsel to the Alexander First Nation. I have diverse uh, legal experience in litigation, uh, employment law, corporate commercial law here on the prairies in Alberta. And I got my start actually with the Attorney General of Ontario. My home territories, I'm on them right now, is a Muskegee Sky Gun, which is Edmonton, Alberta, in Treaty 6 territory. I come from the Alexander First Nation. I'm Nehio Napio from my traditional name for the for our, our nation is Kipotaga, which means the land of the Bushton people, where there's lots of trees around where we're from. And so it's very, very location specific. I've been practicing for, I think, going on to my, I mean, my fifth year, going on to my sixth year. And I have a wealth of experience, I think, in uh, Indigenous law and primarily Aboriginal law as it relates to the Canadian state. And I have a very vested interest in uh, your podcast and in immigration law as it relates to uh, the further, I guess, the further history of Canada moving forward. Gnaskamon for having me this morning. Thank you, Brooks. And uh, first off, I'd really like to thank you for sharing your time with us and to give us your thoughts on some of the issues that are uh, on the front burner during the this election season. So why don't I just jump into it? So uh, first of all, I'd like to get your thoughts on what should first-time voters or newcomers who may not have the vote but are influencing their spouses who do have the ability to vote and their friends as well about let's say, Indigenous perspectives and Indigenous issues, what would you like them to use as their frame of reference? Yeah, for those that might have seen in the news over the past couple of months, and I know this podcast has touched on it, the histories of residential schools are coming to light again. I know that for a lot of people, whether you're new to Canada in the last year or new to Canada in the past couple of years, we should be alive to the uh, the this understanding of what residential schools are and if cer- certainly not if you haven't been here for very long or have not been paying attention to canadian news for a long time most recently there have been over 6000 unmarked graves found at the sites of former residential schools here in canada what that means and and this isn't all brand new to us we've known about these graves whether it's through our conversation with elders or in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's final report itself, we've known that there's about 43,000 unmarked graves still yet to be found. So we're only at that very small tip of where we're at. But that doesn't, that doesn't just deal with these unmarked graves. That also goes to this understanding of intergenerational trauma and where Indigenous folks are at when it comes to looking at this election and the type of issues that Indigenous folks are being faced with right now, we're looking at the platforms of the parties and the conversations that they are having. I think the first time I've ever heard any Indigenous anything with respect to the election was at the federal leaders debate this past, the the English language federal leaders debate this past Thursday. I was not impressed by any of the, of the, I guess, positions that the leaders have put forward. Uh, I think with respect, actually with the exception of Ms. Paul, uh, who was able to identify that Indigenous sovereignty should come first, 
I think for your listeners and for those that do tune in, being on being of the understanding that we are sovereign people, that we on our, are on our own homelands and are displaced from being able to make any decisions with respect to how we relate to the land, which is very foreign from how we used to do this hundreds of years ago. I think that over, over the terms of Canadian, I guess, Canada's existence, we haven't had that same relationship that we had perhaps three or 400 years ago, where we were able to dictate the laws and how we related to the land and how the land was being utilized, or even just how we related to each other. So our traditional principles of Wakotoin and our traditional principles of relating to each other, which that's what that term means. It's our, it's one of our sacred laws and one that I take hold very dearly to my heart. We don't have that ability to relate to each other. And I, I really respected my, uh, Anime Paul's uh, comments of respecting Indigenous sovereignty. And to an extent, Yves-Francois Blanchette also mentioned it, but with, with more emphasis on, on uh, nationalism from a Quebec standpoint. So when we're looking at how these leaders are, are not talking about Indigenous issues, it really is quite concerning in light of the fact that these 6,000 graves have been found over the past couple of months. I don't know what what the what the impetus is to not have this conversation. I think a lot of people are more concerned about the COVID response and the economic recovery, which rightfully understandable. But we also have all of these issues that still exist in the absence of those conversations, and we need to be uh, we need to have these conversations. I know for for me, my understanding right now with where the federal parties are at with respect to immigration is very scant because they're not having those conversations either. We're talking about Afghans, uh, which is very important. We should be having that conversation. We should be bringing in more uh, Afghanis from what's going on in over overseas. But at the same time, we're not talking much about any other groups of individuals that might need that kind of uh, support here in Canada. So in in, in tandem, we're, what we're seeing, and certainly with really far-right fledgling groups like the PPC and the Maverick Party to an extent, we're having these very antagonistic conversations about immigration, about Indigenous issues, but you're also seeing a lot of, like, same, a lot of our groups that are joining them in hand, which is very, very concerning because if you look at the roots of those parties, they're not, um, they don't have our best interests at heart. They have certain other underpinnings that they're interested in. And I think that that answers that question. So Brooks, thank you so much for for framing uh, this for us. Um, when it comes to immigration, and, and I mentioned at the intro that you're, you're interested in looking at the intersection between Indigenous and immigration issues, how do you think the relations between Indigenous and immigration immigrant communities under this new government uh, can be renewed or, or grown upon? What are, what are your hopes for it? Well, we only need to look back at Canada's history to understand that immigration and, and recent immigrants and Indigenous folks have always had very mutually intertwined histories. Whether you're looking at the, the first immigrants to this country, which are the Europeans, and then the subsequent progeny of both of our relationships, uh, the Métis, 
we haven't had a very complicated relationship. Well, it, sorry, it is very complicated relationship. I shouldn't undercount that. But in present day Canada, it's no different. I think that we have the same kind of responsibilities. And I know that for the longest time, the biggest, one of my really dear friends and actually LJ and I have had this conversation, but the understanding and the history of Indigenous folks with Canada has always been something that was never really talked about. We never really knew what that meant and, and what our responsibilities were to each other. But we all, we certainly do have responsibilities to each other. It's within our treaties. It's within, and for those that might not know what a treaty is, I'm, I, they cover a vast expanse of what Canada is. And you have your historic, your historic or numbered treaties, and then you also have your modern day land claims agreements, which we have in British Columbia, the North, and uh, in some in Quebec. We've always had that understanding on how we're supposed to move forward. I think from a very young age of Canada, we've we've understood what our relationship has been. I think we've kind of lost that. I think for new immigrants and uh, new Canadians, that conversation isn't there because they're not being taught it. They're not being informed on what that relationship is. I, I know that there has been that change uh, to legislation to reference the past that Canadians have and, and new Canadians have with Indigenous folks. But I don't think people know what that means. And certainly it is a, an ongoing relationship. It's an ongoing conversation that we need to have. But I think we as Canadians and, and Indigenous folks, we need to get to understand what that means for us and how we move forward in a good way. So what I see our way of moving forward is by having that mutual respect, understanding and learning from our communities. I know there's diverse, beautiful communities, I'm sorry, I should say beautiful, diverse uh, migrant communities here in Edmonton, Muskegon, and that cultural bridging that exists is, is quite beautiful. And I see it on the regular. I, I just wish that we had more of a, a commitment from our leadership. Uh, on on moving this forward, on moving this agenda forward. I find a lot of times there's a lot of, with politicking, there's a lot of wedging communities against each other or leveraging communities against each other. And I think that that is a little bit concerning. And, and I don't want to say that it, raising Indigenous issues at the ire of, or at the expense of another community is, is, is beneficial. I think we, there is room for all of us at the table to have these conversations and to make sure that our communities are mutually interlinked and moving forward in a good way like treaties intended. Wow, that's quite a lot to actually process there, right there. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Brooks. Actually, to that point, it allows me to bring myself to the next question on communication is one of the tangible steps that we can do to actually basically bridge that gap between immigration and Indigenous issues. Now, I'm wondering, apart from communication, uh, and I know that you have a lot of involvement in your community in Edmonton, and as we all know, Edmonton has a rich uh, immigration history as well. I'm wondering what tangible steps do you recommend be made to improve things, you know, between Indigenous immigrant relations and with immigration uh, writ large? And I, I think that's a broader question for our communities as a whole. I think it has to happen from the grassroots level. It can't really be one that's dictated from the top down. But that's not to say that the uh, our leaders have 
do not have a responsibility to help equitable equitably fund our like our interconnectedness so at the grassroots level, we have an obligation to reach out to our neighbors and have those conversations and open and expand our, our connections. And that's not going to happen unless you have that conversation, unless you open your heart up and have those frank and honest spaces where you can share freely and, ex and share your experiences because our experiences aren't that different. We may have just, we may have come from different parts of the world, but we all have very similar commonalities that we should be open to and receptive and sharing with each other so that that communication is key. And I don't think it's going to be coming from our governments. It's not going to be a facilitated conversation. It has to be with by ourselves, by us doing it together and true partnership. How you go about that? Well, you you need to be able to have those funds available, whether it's through, um, you know, SSHRC uh, funding grants, Heritage Canada grants, things of that nature, or even at the local level, at the provincial or municipal level, we need to have these spaces to gather and to have these conversations. And, and for Indigenous folks, we're always, wel we always welcome our, our neighbours, whether you're new to Canada or you've been here, your families have been here for centuries. You you have a place at our table we are more than welcome to have these conversations and we always welcome anyone into our ceremonies into our our conversations because that's the kind of people that we are we believe in trust and reciprocity despite the misgivings of the can canadian government over the uh, past hundred or so years we've we still are very welcome to our our neighbors and that is a uh, core tenet of of Wakotuan, of our laws, where we relate to each other and how we relate to each other. We have to make sure that we have these spaces available and have these dialogues because my understanding and, and the way I believe our responsibilities are to each other is that we just have to listen to each other. Uh, so then that way we can set a chart forward that includes everyone and it doesn't it doesn't exclude anyone that Right, so rightfully deserves to be at the table. Brooks, I, I wanted to ask about one thing, and I know you said, and I and I I really appreciate that point that that the government shouldn't. It, it's it's up on to our communities to to facilitate this conversation. The government's role can only be so much. But in what the government has done, for example, for the indigenous name reclamation that they were going to offer, they didn't speak to communities, and now they're finding out after the fact that they're consultations had a huge oversight didn't take into account specific character letters for change name changes for example the municipal immigration programs they haven't talked to indigenous communities to the extent that i think they need to when their ideas of bringing in newcomers to indigenous lands or working with different nations what do you think can be done there is, is there any room for the government to step up i love this question i immediately as you i got goosebumps thinking about like how this can be reformed and that that is a, an, a perfect opportunity to expand that relationship that was supposed to be developed under treaty we were supposed to share this land together and we're, we're still intended to share this land together for time for time forever basically as long as the sun uh, shines as long as the grass grows and the rivers flow we have an, uh, an obligation to work together on these types of topics where we understand that Indigenous folks have had these, these laws and these processes in place for millennia. And immigration is not any different. Where we have that conversation, I think we need to understand that First Nations and other Indigenous communities 
have some catching up to do. We we've been underfunded for both education internally for our for our folks, so we don't have sometimes the capacity to enter into those conversations. But it certainly is a necessary thing. There is case law out there that talks about how actually most recently. Well, my organization, the Indigenous Bar Association, I'm the vice president. I probably should have put that in my introduction, but I uh, we we just did an intervener status case for Disautel at the Supreme Court of Canada. And that one deals with transboundary rights. And it's in essence an, uh, an immigration issue, an immigration question. And we had never been part of that conversation. We've never been part of that conversation. And it is one that I don't think Canada thinks that we need to be a part of, but it is certainly one that affects our, our resources, our lands, our just basic basic tenets of, of existing. And we don't get invited in any of those conversations because Canada doesn't deem Indigenous nations as worthy. And in, in those instances that they might do, it might be those specific nations that have transboundary interests, like the Haudenosaunee in Ontario, or some nations that are closer to the border between the United States and Canada. It's certainly, there there is a place for that kind of conversation, but... I'm not sure if Indigenous nations are at that place yet to have those conversations about other uh, immigrants that might be coming to Canada, because I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't want them to stop any of those conversations or stop individuals like, say, from uh, Afghanistan to come to Canada and to, and to live and prosper here just as much as we do. Because at the end of the day, there's still a lot of discrimination that happens with Indigenous folks, and that's by new Canadians, that's by old, I, I hate this term, but I'm going to use a Stephen Harperism. I think that for us, we need to be understand that not everyone has the same capacity to have these conversations, and perhaps maybe we need to rethink how we include Indigenous nations in these conversations because they have to be, immigration is just one part of where Indigenous people have to be at the table helping to make these decisions because we remember our history, the Canadian history, Indigenous peoples helped with confederation, whether we acknowledge it or not. There would be no Canada if there were no if the if the indigenous folks that were here did not help recent or new immigrants to Canada help them exist here, whether that's through being hardy, making it through the harsh winters, through the difficult summers, it, or whether it it is like present day today, where you have a really strong, vibrant history of indigenous people always having really strong relationships with those individuals that uh, those groups that might have been facing the same kind of adversity as we were so here in the prairies we have examples of that with the ukrainian population that exploded on the prairies in the late 1800s i think that that is something 1800s 1900s early 1900s around that time period but we have always had those really strong relationships actually one of my cousins is half ukrainian half nehiao and that just goes to show that we've always had really strong relationships with our migrant communities and it is always a very i think because i think the reason why we have these and this is just me i guess anecdotally speaking to this and not basing it on empirical data, but I think because they face 
such adversity when they come to Canada, whether that's through the systemic racism or this power politics that existed on the, uh, in Canada for the longest time between certain ruling groups versus others. We always had that kind of relationship with them because we were always at the lowest rung of society and it still exists today. I'm sure I'm, I, yeah, I, I think that's, yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Brooks, actually. And, you know, as I guess, like, just to wrap up, I'm, I'm curious about any final thoughts and w- what really gives you hope, I suppose, at this historic junction with, you know, where we're at a critical juncture, there's a confluence of a lot of issues coming to the fore, whether it be immigration, whether it be in a, a you know, indigenous relations between newcomers, or even with, as you said, for previous and first waves of immigrants in, in Canada, any final thoughts on hope? from you? I hope that we come together. Our communities do have a lot of similarities and connections. And one of my favorite things that I I like talking about is the cultural aspect of things. I was actually just up in Whitehorse and I was talking with, with a first generation Filipina and her experience, she's actually in Whitehorse and the Yukon generally, they have really strong intercultural connections. And a lot of that comes from the progress that the Yukon First Nations have made in that territory. A lot of that cultural connection that had has existed and that has flourished there has led her to understand that there are so many similarities culturally with her community and the, with the Indigenous community there. And one of the examples that I, I, I really took a lot of, a lot of adoration from and, and a lot of strength from was when she mentioned a lot of the little folklore type things that exist in her community. And, and in her, she actually grew up in Manila half of the year. So she is very connected with her community. But a lot of the folklore that exists there and here in Canada, specifically in Yukon and even on the prairies, because I was sharing some of mine with her, it was it was really nice to see that there was just, it was very, it was the exact same. There was the exact same. And I can't really speak about it because it's cultural stuff, but it was very heartwarming that those commonalities that we have wouldn't have been shared or I wouldn't have had that knowledge had we not had these conversations, had we not brokered that relationship. And I think once we understand that as, as a nation, as a, a nation of, of folks that have all come here, and as Chief Justice Lamar said in Delgamook, that we're all, let's let us face it, we're all here to stay. I think we have a responsibility to understand each other and to get to know each other. And there's great strength in that. I think with the upswell of, of white supremacy and, and, and on top of that uh, systemic racism and ongoing genocide against my peoples, I think we have a responsibility as, as BIPOC to have these conversations and to work together and to group together because we have a lot of very common interests and goals, which is equality for all and inclusion for everyone because we've lived so long being on the margins and not having these conversations and and feeling as if we're very powerless but we there's a lot of power in all of us together and i think that if we want to understand multiculturalism as not just a concept but an actual practice 
we have an obligation to work on that, to break these walls down and bridge, build bridges and connect with each other. So then that way we can build a Canada for our children and our children's children that is equitable, that focuses on, on climate justice, that works in, in correlation with each other on our differences that make us all the more, more stronger. Thank you so much, Brooks. Um, I know I'm going to be taking your words to the ballot box when I vote on the 20th. And thank you for taking your time this morning and, and sharing your wisdom with our listeners. We really, really appreciate you. Naskamon, thank you for having me and sending you all good wishes and hopeful for a positive result in the election this year. Thank you, Brooks. Our next guest is Cassandra Lord. Cassandra Lord is an Ontario resident and voter for whom Canadian immigration is a major election issue this time around. She is a racialized woman of color, a academic, and most importantly, she is a sponsor under Canada's Family Class Program and has faced major hurdles bringing in her spouse. She's bringing these with her as she plans to vote in election 44. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce Cassandra Lord. Yeah. Thank you so no much problem. for coming on your show. Uh, yeah, thank you for having me. I'm sorry that my camera is like, oh, not working no. very well. Okay, so um, I just also want to say that I'm speaking to you today from Toronto, Toronto, and I would like to acknowledge that the land is that this land is the territory of the Huron Wendat, the Pluton First Nations, the Anishinaabe, Seneca, the Mississaugas of the Credit River, and the nations of the Haudenosaunee. The city remains the home to Indigenous peoples from across the island. So thank you so much for, again, for having me mm -hmm. today. Oh, thank you so much for, for taking time for us, Cassandra. Yeah. So if we can start with the first question, can you tell us about your own experiences with Canadian immigration and IRCC and maybe what that has translated to for you? Right. So I guess my, my direct experience is through the spousal sponsorship process, specifically as a Canadian-born citizen, sponsoring my spouse from Cuba to Canada. And I also add here that being the daughter of immigrants, my uh, experience of immigration is through my parents' experience of immigrating to Montreal from Trinidad and Tobago as university students during the Pierre Trudeau Elliott years. And that also informs my discussion. But I think my parents' process, as they explained to me, they're no longer here, was not particularly difficult in terms of coming to Canada and later becoming citizens, but it was through maybe their own experiences of race and racism in Canada that they experienced. And I think reflecting on my own process of spousal sponsorship, which lasted about 20 months, I would say that spousal sponsorship is not for the faint of heart. Mm. So when I talk about, uh, when I, before be, my partner and I embarked upon through the application process, I, as a researcher, went through the Canly, I think that's how it was pronounced, website to kind of look at the, what constitutes a, genu a genuine relationship. And I also want to say here that spousal sponsorship as how it's been framed is through a very heterosexual lens. And my partner is male, but also I'm very aware of how even looking through the Canley uh, website and the court documents in terms of how genuineness was uh, established, it is very much through a heterosexual framework. So we, so I kept really at the forefront of my mind, race, class, gender, and sexuality were how I constructed my genuine relationship story as a way to kind of talk about how we met and so forth, as a way to show IRCC, because I think it's, as a racialized woman of color, I have to prove, or I have to prove my relationship 
partner has to, we have to prove our relationship is genuine through, and also that we are, we're seen as guilty, first instead of innocent and proving our innocence. So I will say here that the application uh, process for RCC began with us submitting in October 2019. And within a month, we received a request for biometrics and then the sponsor approval. And then the paper-based file was sent from Canada to the Mexico visa office. I will say here also that Cuba is unique in that um, it's economically challenged. There is no panel position uh, available in Cuba uh, on the island. And in 2019, services pertaining to the, the processing of, uh, of files were, mo were moved from uh, Cuba to the Canadian visa office in, in Mexico. So Cuban PR applicants need to fly to uh, a third country and most likely a third country that is non-visa required in order to get their medical done and also in order to get their interview done and the two countries that are close proximity you have a choice of going to Trinidad and Tobago or uh, going to to Mexico but you need a visa in order to go to Mexico so so in early 2020 and March we got a medical request and it, the best option was to fly to Trinidad and Tobago in order for us to do the medical there. So I coordinated flights from Canada for myself and for my spouse from, from uh, Havana to Port of Spain and then the pandemic hit. So that was the borders were closed of, as, as of March uh, 16th. And then, so we were left in a holding pattern. In uh, late 2000, 2020, and uh, from the, that period till 2021, I did a number of things. So I reached out to my MP, I wrote to the Minister of Immigration, I also got GCMS notes to find out what's going on with my application, but nothing was seemed to be moving and no information was coming through in terms of where we were at in terms of the status of our application. In March of 2021, we received a criminal another request for a criminal record update and also travel history, my old travel history to, to Cuba. And I've been to Cuba maybe in a matter of two and a half years, maybe eight or nine times, and maybe two to three weeks at length, and maybe a month or more is the, the time I've spent there. And then around, around I think it was uh, in March 2021, I decided to file a mandamus. And uh, knowing that we had to comply, so as lawyers, you know that the idea of clean hands, you have to come with everything being done, we needed to get that medical done. So when we filed the first mandamus, we couldn't get a status information or IRCC didn't respond, um, the lawyers for IRCC didn't respond. And then we went to the next stage. And then my husband in May of 2021 decided to fly to Russia. So think about it, like in terms of how much money. And we tried different routes. So we did... Prior to that, we tried to go from Havana to Panama via Guyana, and of Havana via Port of Spain back to Guyana. So those were extra money. So it was about two or $3,000 in flights alone that we had in credits. And then around, uh, I would say maybe in, so when my, so a lot of the process also is building a sense of, for me, around documentation and mistrust because there is no transparency. Uh, I'm not getting any information. So around, I think when my, my partner went, they went to Moscow, we, I asked them to send me a photo of your medical report, knowing that it wasn't in, it wasn't going to be in the system from the medical establishment there to IRCC, but 
Uh, so we did that in order to kind of force the hand through a web form. Uh, so that was like a Thursday and by a Monday, they acknowledged that they received, like it, it updated in the system that the medical was received. And then from there, I think around, I think when we, we went to the next process of the writ and then we, things started to move. So in the beginning of June, we got a pre-arrival and then right a two, couple of days later, then we got um, the, PR, the uh, COPR pa passport request. So, uh, so if for us, I think it has been traumatizing. <laughs> Every time we hear about IRCCV, it kind of jerks us. And uh, it's, uh, I kind of condensed how I'm kind of talking about this, but it's still very much uh, like present in how we are experiencing our, you know, immigration. And still we don't have the PR card yet, which I know may come sometime, they said to me when I called on Friday in December. Wow. That's a lot of uh, information in the last few minutes, and uh, I can I can certainly appreciate how that can be traumatizing. It's it's almost like a, that shock of electricity when you probably hear IRCC. So let 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 me just ask a question about you know what's currently going on. The elephant in the room, the election. So as the elections are going on and being in the throes of a complex sponsorship or right out of it, what are your thoughts? Has your Canadian immigration experience, you know, through the sponsorship process, shaped your vote? Most definitely. I would say that, number one, I've always voted. So since I was 18, I've always been involved in voting. My parents took me as a kid to vote. I think also the lack of accountability and transparency were things that I was really looking for throughout the process. I didn't realize as a as uh, going through as a sponsor that there would be so much work that would be involved. It's almost like a full-time job. I think that also, I feel that attention is not given to spousal sponsorship. And as I do say so in terms of, it's given in terms of the heterosexual kind of component in terms of how what we see happening in terms of on social media and so forth. But in terms of thinking about, uh, you, know, you know, queer people kind of going forth and, and improving themselves through spousal sponsorship. I think that is something that des deserves attention. I think COVID has also exposed that they say the cracks in the system but the system was also stalled before COVID, right? Because we got our, we, we started the process before COVID. So there was no reason for, I understand that things are shut down and the government kind of using the same tactics, but when we're seeing, and when advocacy groups are talking about that there is a problem and you're getting your, the, there's an elephant in the room and it's not being addressed, that also kind of, it taints people's experience in terms of that the government is not being truthful or transparent. So I think that has also shaped how I am voting, <laughs> how I, what I think about in terms of the broader aspect, because it can, um, the, you know, the, all parties can address everything, but I think immigration in terms of disposal sponsorship, it needs to kind of think about that and, and also kind of moving towards what does modernization look like? You know, you can't build a system, you can't kind of like change a system that is already built on colonial kind of structures. So I think that's really important to think about. Sandra, why do you think the issues of immigration and, I mean, even this election race, equ race equity, the importance of the, mic of the migrant family, our experiences, I, I know you're a professor that studies these issues in the proximity to gender and sexuality studies. Why has, why are these issues just fallen off the map, it appears, if we look at the mainstream media or if we look at what the politicians are, are saying in debates, you know, when we're not seeing us? I think Canada has to grapple with its past and it hasn't done so. And I think race and really kind of bringing the discussion of race kind of alienates people. It, like saying the word or saying 
saying the word race, instead of using or pointing to diversity, which is a stand-in or a code word for race, ethnicity, and culture, is not talking about race, right? Or histories of colonialism. And I think the platform, the different platforms, they talk a lot about, they, they bring in diversity, but they're afraid to talk about the complicity that, you know, and how the immigration system in itself is, you know, built on foundations of race and racism, right? So I think that that hesitancy is what we have to grapple with as a country. And also with, I think, the, the politicians need to head, you need to confront head on. Mm. And what would your pitch be, given that politicians right now seem more concerned with, you know, speaking to anti-vaxxers as their, as their possible voters than actually to, to migrant communities? What would your pitch be to politicians to care about immigrant uh, applicants? And from one perspective, you know, someone like your spouse and, 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 and even my spouse, you know, they're, they're still many years away from voting in an election. They got to meet the PR requirements first. They got to apply for citizenship. We know it takes a couple of years for that afterwards. It could be a couple of election cycles. So what, what is the impetus for politicians now to care about this and what would you pitch them? I think like, the, so if IRCC is the first point of entry, think about people's experiences coming in, right? So they need to care about the PR applicants that are coming in as well, immigrant applicants that are coming in because they're the potential voters. They bring their families, they will vote in the future. They are the future of Canada. And if you talk about Canada as a diverse nation and immigration is a process, then you want different different perspectives and you want people to be actively engaged. And I think that they need to address permanent residents, even though they are not active voters. My husband is reading stuff and, and, and you know, shaping their, their own opinion about politics from, you know, coming to Canada. So I think that, that you need to, you need to kind of target permanent residents. You need to think about the future generations of people who are voting. Okay. So uh, I'm curious, Cassandra, and sort of like uh, wraps up to about to, to talking about issues. What can the different advocacy groups do or what should they do really that would be different that could influence the government or parties who are you know trying to form government that would be elected and to make them a bit more accountable what are the steps the uh, you know what are your concrete recommendations and thoughts on those I think advocacy groups have a really important role to play they influence politics they getting their um, members to kind of engage in active issues, especially in this case around family reunification is a huge issue during the pandemic in terms of thinking about the delays that were put forward by COVID. Uh, but I think that advocacy groups also need to think about who are their members? Who, are they reflective of diverse uh, members in there in terms of who kind of heads or who sits at the table in the beginning, right? How can they make alliances or make or kind of get their foot in the door across different parties to get their voices heard. It takes a lot of money for, for advocacy groups to, to get off. And I know that the ones that have been working around, you know, sponsor sponsorship have, have done a lot in terms of leeway, but I think more needs to be done in terms of thinking about how people cycle out of these groups. In terms of people who are at the head of these groups, you need to think about what is the legacy of the group and how does it continue on? Thank you so much, Cassandra. Thank you for, for bravely sharing your, your recent experiences, going through that trauma one, once more with us to, to talk about your experiences and reminding our listeners and, and the Canadian politicians, we hope listen to this episode as well, that the immigrant experience isn't one that we just 
compartmentalize and, and leave behind. We we take it with us everywhere we go. And Cassandra will be taking it with her uh, to the ballot. I will be taking it with the ballot uh, myself on the 20th. And I think uh, LJ will be as well. It's it's the issue that's foremost in, in our in our minds right now. And, and uh, thank you, Cassandra, for, for being on our show. Thank you. Well, that was a, a really great conversation with uh, Cassandra, Dr. Lord. I thought uh, I learned a lot and I'm really excited to see how she translates her experiences into her research and advocacy. Absolutely. Looking forward to the next uh, steps that she would take with all that experience, that wealth of experience that she had. So without further ado, Will, why don't you go ahead and introduce our next guest? Absolutely. So Andrew Griffith is a fellow of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and the Environics Institute. He is a former director general of citizenship and multiculturalism at Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada and has worked for government departments in Canada and abroad. He is now a blogger, author, social commentator and frequently writes pieces about immigration policy issues. All right. So let's go ahead and welcome Andrew. Welcome, Andrew. Okay. We're glad to have you in. Thanks for having me. So, Will, why don't you go ahead and start us off with the first question? Alrighty. So, Andrew, if you can general, if you can start generally with giving us a quick overview. Uh, I know you've written a lot of pieces, and we're going to share those links with our, our readers as well. But what are the key foundational platforming issues of the major political parties as it pertains to immigration? Okay, well, I guess I would start off by saying that in terms of the three major political parties, and perhaps with the Greens added to that, is you can see the general Canadian consensus in favor of immigration, that immigration is a net positive for the country. And so I think the differences between the parties need to be considered in that context. When I look at the individual parties, if I look at sort of the Liberal Party, it's basically sort of more of the same, same kind of messaging, uh, stating the things they will do and being silent on the things that they don't want to talk about, like all political parties. And I think the um, thing that I found probably the most interesting on the Liberals in, in many ways is they didn't talk about the levels because they've made you know, a lot of messaging around how proud they are to be able to meet the uh, targets of 400,000 at a time of you know, economic downturn and COVID. And yet that appears nowhere in the, in the, in the platform. It just surprises me. Uh, the Conservatives, I would say, is that they're trying to play in the same kind of general space as supportive of immigration. But they put in a few wrinkles uh, in that, which uh, may be sort of addressing concerns that they've heard from their base and others. I mean, I think it's interesting that and refugees are really trying to move away from government-assisted refugees towards privately sponsored refugees. And I almost wonder if that's the nod towards uh, PPC supporters, where the PPC explicitly calls for no longer taking refugees from the UN. I don't know that, but it's in a question. The other thing that is also interesting is the whole idea of expedited processing fees for immigration. And it surprises me that that hasn't attracted more attention or more scrutiny because you know, we all know with healthcare how the bogeyman of two-tier healthcare plays out. And this is sort of the same kind of approach with respect to immigration. Now, there's some, you can make some valid policy rationales for providing additional support for those who do that. And you can make a case in the, case, in the situation of employers with respect to temporary foreign workers. But it surprises me. And the other element that sort of uh, I found interesting, and I think is actually quite innovative, is really sort of looking at the family class 
and saying, well, do we actually need to have sort of more objective or, or some criteria that are more public through a some form of point system? And I think that's to try and serve, you know, previous governments have always tried to address family class immigration and, and, and no approach ever satisfies the public demand for that. And the other thing, of course, notable from the Conservative Party platform, and this gets to the absence, is that no reference to multiculturalism, no reference to anti-racism, and not even an anodyne reference rather than the more detailed proposals of the Liberals, the NDP, and the Greens. And the NDP uh, focuses more on refugees and family class. Again, it probably reflects uh, some of their base concerns on those ones, but is silent on, on, on e economic immigration and is really silent in terms of uh, how they would balance the three categories. And I just, one quick note on the Greens, it's, it tends to be closer to the NDP than any of the other platforms. The Bloc, of course, is all about more powers for Quebec, and we'll get into that a bit later. And the PPC is sort of the one alternative party that is you know, advocating for much lower levels of immigration and some reference to sort of, you know, more right-wing views, uh, you know, which probably reflects sort of, you know, they're the part that pulls some of the uh, potential conservative voters to the right. That's a really good overview of uh, what's going on with all the party lines. And thank you for sharing your thoughts on that, Andrew. So if you'll allow me, uh, Will and I actually have listed a few key issues, more specific subtopics to what you just spoke about. So first of all, I want to talk about the family class and refugee commitments. You know, as a first point, is it a genuine care that they're actually talking about Afghanistan and you know, the first question should be, are they even talking enough about it? Uh, we all know now that at least the first 20,000 commitment from the Liberal government that was just dismissed was essentially uh, just a reallocation of existing slots for refugees. They did say that they're going to top it up. Are you able to share us your thoughts about, you know, this particular crisis and the public outrage uh, relating to Afghanistan and the spousal delays, actually, in terms of like the family class, we'll touch on that. But let's focus on Afghanistan for a second. Well, I think it's really hard to understand how the government and governments around the world, quite frankly, so seriously underestimated the Taliban and how quickly the uh, takeover would take place and why once the uh, agreement between the previous U.S. administration, the Taliban came to fight, that people weren't doing more active preparation and more preemptive work. So I think there's a massive fail there on the part of governments around the world. It's not just limited to the Canadian government. So every government is probably playing a bit of catch up. And, and so, yes, the initial 20,000 was sort of just sort of a reallocation, I mean, a valid reallocation. And the Liberals, of course, are now committed to another 20,000 spots, assuming they can get here or get to a safe third country. The other parties haven't made specific number commitments, but I would be very surprised that uh, any government would, likely government, would have an overly restrictive approach to Afghan refugees, given what we know about the Taliban and given the initial signs. Now, there has been criticism, of course, that it's been overly bureaucratic and too many, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's kind of approach. And I think those are valid. On the other hand, you know, there's governments are always af afraid of security threats and things like that. So I think, so I think there's a mix there that, you know, yeah, we missed the boat, but we're not alone in missing the boat. And the test will really be see over the next coming months of how many people we can actually 
admit, you know, and, and, and encourage to come here. But I don't anticipate, you know, any of the major parties would really have an overly restrictive point because I think, you know, we are responsible for a lot of those people. You know, and, um, and there's, you know, fortunately, there are a lot of the people, former military and the others and the media that keep the, the visibility on those people. And I think that's a good thing. I guess the, the question of the family class, just sort of building off of what you just said of refugees, it's, you know, the second election with a refugee crisis, it seems like for, for family class and the challenges and delays, it seems like an issue that comes up every single election and every party pledges, you know, a whole slew of possible solutions and pitches it, but we're, we're back talking about it again. So shifting now to that, is that because there is an issue behind the scenes that is just stopping even political power from being able to change anything? What, what, is, what are your perspectives on the family? Well, I mean, I think the reality is that there will always be more demand for family class, whether it be parents and grandparents or spousal. And so governments have to make a choice between the various categories. And so you can argue that maybe close to 60% economic is too much compared to family class or refugees, but that's the fundamental trade-off that people are making. Now, one can also argue, is it really a valid trade-off? And I think you know, there are the discussions that can be had there, but it's, you know, whether it be the previous conservative government, the current liberal government, it's always been an issue that has satisfied nobody. You know, there's always, you know, whether you tried a lottery system, whether you tried first enter, you know, first applicant, there's always been problems there. So I, that's why I think in, in many ways that the conservative idea of actually trying to put in place some form of a you know, point system or, or equivalent where there are criteria that you explicitly prioritize it's not going to be an easy one to implement because whenever you publish those criteria, people will be sort of saying, well, why this, why not that? But I think it's an interesting initiative to try and sort of shift the focus to an approach that perhaps hasn't been tried before. And just on the point of like processing, I want to circle back into your point about, you know, that thing that you mentioned at the top of the conversation, which was, you know, priority processing for fees. As a follow-up, do you, do you know of any other country that does this white glove uh, visa processing proposal, apart from the usual suspects of golden visas uh, from, you know, countries that uh, do uh, investment, uh, citizenship by investment? I'm not, you know, apart from the citizenship by investment kind of programs, whether it be EB-5 in the U.S. or, or, or other programs, I'm not. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist, and it doesn't mean that other governments aren't thinking about that. And so it's something I should probably you know, follow more closely in my readings to see if that, that's coming out. We've heard from our actually Twitter followers that the, the UK and the United States have some form of expedited. Uh, and I think that the UK is sort of the most, the one that is most obvious where, where you pay a little more and get something decided quicker. But yeah, there, there are definitely concerns of pay to play and, and what happens to those who do not have the funds to pony up. And in, in a sense, though, COVID, I mean, the recent announcement of the TRV, mm. I don't know, Andrew, if you have any comments on that, the, the government's instructions that they mm. seem to be pulling, pulling back on a little bit now, but the ones that say you should withdraw your TRV and pay again if you, if you want to get processed quicker. Well, I, you know, I think on, like, like it, it's, to me, you know, it's almost a, a philosophical point to me that I don't like the idea of, differential fees for a government service 
unless it, there's a real valid reason for that. Like I can see that in the case of passports, for example, you know, you need a, a passport renewal, you pay more money, you get it the next day. I mean, I, th I can see that because you still have the option, you know, like you should be able to plan ahead with your passport demands. I mean, that strikes me as more, but in terms of sort of immigration processing, unless it's really sort of business related and an employer, I just feel uncomfortable with it. It doesn't, Mean that other people can serve, can't make an argument for that. But the idea that you generate more revenue and that improves processing for everybody, you know, it may be more of a wish than an actual fact. I think also the, the layer of discretion where we know that the, the approval rates of different applications is, is so divergent. So, unlike a passport where you know you're going to get your passport unless you sort of really mess something up or you're ineligible, and in, in a visa, it could be any, you know, outcome. That's right. That's right. The, yeah. the more money you pay could, could right. be one of those influencing factors, right? So, yeah. You've already started to talk about your, <laughs> you know, editorial thoughts on uh, the kinds of programs that are being put on the plate here, Andrew. Uh, I'm curious about the balance of uh, some of these proposals put forward by the parties running for government. What are your thoughts generally about the way that immigration is, you know, factored into uh, election 44? Should they talk about it more? And there's actually criticism that compared to other elections, immigration doesn't play as much of a big role in terms of a you know conversation in this cycle. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, it's a legitimate issue. And I think, you know, there are two sort of thought, thoughts or two threads. So one is sort of, you know, John Ibbotson sort of saying, well, actually, we should be thankful that immigration is not an issue. We're avoiding some of the kind of polarization that other countries have experienced and continue to experience. So in one sense, you know, not having it discussed actually reduces that risk. The counter argument is that if we're not discussing these issues, where do they get discussed? Because we know that immigration is significant. We know that the impact that immigration has on any range of issues in the country, ranging from infrastructure, housing, you know, social uh, cohesion, integration, uh, inclusion, whatever. And so in one sense, by not having or having such a limited discussion, I think we're missing an opportunity, but the risk is, of course, if you have that discussion, you can increase further polarization. So my general bias is we probably should be having a bit more discussion, but uh, you know, it, it, it's hard to ignore the fact that whenever it becomes an issue, it becomes polarizing. So, but you know, hiding issues under the rug usually, you know, eventually they crawl from under the rug anyway. So better to have some discussion of the, of them at least in the macro level, than not, in my view. In terms of the political platforms, and, and, and sorry, this is a question that I don't know if I'm phrasing it perfectly, but other than the PPC, who seems to be very ideologically influenced, it seems like with immigration, there is a bit of like that circle catch-all where at a certain point in time, even the far left and the far, and, and not the far left, but the left and the right can meet on, on certain points. Is that a a good thing for immigration, generally speaking, and or is that something that poses a challenge? Well, I mean, I think it's a net positive that the major parties are all, you know, what I would call in the pro-immigration space. And it doesn't mean that some of the differences between the parties are not important or significant. Uh, but I think it's actually, you know, a good sign that basically they're, you know, they could all they all should be able to work together on immigration if they're in a minority government situation because there's a fair degree 
of, uh, of agreement. Where it becomes a problem is that if they're not willing to have a discussion, like I think there's a legitimate policy debate on levels in the current context and even in the longer term context. And that's where I think we're losing something because by not having, being able to have an open discussion of what are the appropriate levels? Does it make sense in the current context of COVID? Uh, does it make sense five years from now? Does it make sense 10 years from now for, for those? So that's what we're losing. But, you know, to paraphrase uh, you know, the famous quote by Kim Campbell, elections are no time for policy discussions. There's an element of truth because that's a more complex issue that you can't really capture in a soundbite in a debate. Transitioning now back to the, the different parties, I know you mentioned that from the conservative side, you uh, pay to play maybe bring some concerns in terms of expedited fees. You do quite like the possibility of maybe moving to a, a point system or at least looking at the possibility. What about some of the other ideas? For example, the the liberals' uh, citizenship fee, they want to get rid of citizenship uh, fees for, for the grants. Is, is that something that, and I, I think they promised that last election too. Is this the second time yes. around? Or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So why, didn't they, so why didn't they implement it? <laughs> is my question. <laughs> they had two years to do that. Well, you could say COVID and everything like that. The COVID is sort of like a get out of jail card, if you want to use that expression. Mm-hmm. In, but, in pre- previously, I had always argued that, you know, that the high fees that were introduced in 2014-15 were too high, too exorbitant, you know, 1400 for a family of four, more or less. But you could actually sort of have a more mid-range, which would sort of reflect the fact that the costs have gone up, that there are both personal benefits as well as their public policy benefits. So I never would advocated going as low as eliminating the fees, but I said lower fees were important. Sorry for that little digression. Yeah, and, and I know you touched on this a little bit earlier. You've hinted on this. The NDP's thoughts or a pitch essentially to re- remove the caps on uh, parent and grandparent uh, sponsorship. And you know, I've heard advocates talk about this, and they, they usually reference uh, countries such as the U.S., for example, where there are no caps for immediate family sponsorship and even parent sponsorship and grandparent sponsorship or petitions, as they call them in the U.S. What are your thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts, again, is that, you know, the the governments are trying to balance whatever government comes in. They have to sort of balance between, like, how many people do you want under one category versus another? And so if you eliminate the caps, you know, the implication is you're probably going to be crowding out economic or perhaps refugees or perhaps a mixture of both. And so I think you really have to have some form of notional targets. And the question is, how do you allocate those spaces in a way that's as fair and as reasonable as possible? And the other thing is, you know, one of the major arguments that immigration advocates make, of course, with immigration is with respect to the aging population and then and that immigrants basically make, you know, help the the overall population uh, age at a less rapid rate. And of course, parents and grandparents don't help that. I mean, they provide other benefits like childcare for, for families and things like that. So they're, I'm not saying they're a net negative, but I think if, you, if you're concerned about the demographics, then you also have to question how many parents and grandparents we should enter compared to uh, international students transitioning or younger families or whatever. 
I want to shift the topic a little bit to a bit of future casting here. Uh, I'm curious about your thoughts about post-COVID changes and uh, kind of like what COVID actually gave us a glimpse of. For example, creating programs for what Canada deems to be as low-skilled or semi-skilled. And I want to kind of use France as a point of reference where they not only gave status, uh, but they gave citizenship to people who were working in the front lines. What are, I mean, you know, people will sort of compare to the uh, Ange Gardien uh, that uh, Quebec has implemented. What are your thoughts mm -hmm. about having a post-COVID more permanent solution or fix to, you know, this uh, acknowledgement that, you know, these low-skilled or semi-skilled are, after all, essential workers? Well, I think it is rather striking, and I think you've noticed it as well, is France was able to give 12,000 healthcare workers citizenship, you know, pretty expedited process. And our sort of special administrative stream or whatever it's called for healthcare workers that had you know, 20,000 slots, only about 4,000 or so have been uh, accepted so far. So it's, to my mind, there's been some failure there and, uh, you know, others have written about some of the uh, burdens there. So I think for healthcare workers, and then you see that in some of the party platforms that they, they make a nod towards healthcare workers and other essential workers. But the proof will really be how quickly can you do it and, and, and how effectively you will do it. Because I think you know, the, the government hasn't quite succeeded in, in, in addressing that issue yet. And, uh, and it's an area that I think there's fairly broad public support for that because everybody at some point in time goes to a hospital <laughs> and needs these kind of uh, support that uh, people can provide. Looking with your forward lens uh, as well, um, I know our big conversation as of COVID is, is the, are the backlogs that many individuals around the world are facing, families being separated, the use now of technology and tools available to IRCC, artificial intelligence, uh, the potential bias in those processes. I know you've been writing about that as, as well, and you were heavily involved in that when you were on the IRCC side in terms of the, if I'm not mistaken, shaping some of these uh, programs and ideas. And, 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 and what do you think about the state we're in now? And are, do you have any concerns about, about the forward-looking future of technology and, and backlog? Uh, okay, first of all, I left IRCC before this stuff was really being talked about or worked on, so I don't have any inside experience. I have assisted or attended some sessions where we've been, there, there was one a person from IRCC who was actually explaining how it was done in the temporary visa program. And I was actually, along with other people, were quite impressed in terms of how, the measured approach and how they, you know, did some tests to make sure that, you know, comparing human and, and I think to try and minimize the risks of algorithmic bias. And we know from, you know, everything we read with Facebook and others that there are those, those are real risks and they have to be looked at very carefully. That being said, like I, we have to recognize that all systems have biases, including ones that are determined by humans. And so we have to look at these technologies because A, the numbers are such that we can't do it by humans, you know, they, they, that you still want to make sure that the initial filtration can be done efficiently by AI. You want to make sure that the AI algorithms are tested thoroughly for bias and for what is you know, legitimate bias versus illegitimate bias, because 
all immigration programs have a certain degree. It's, they're discriminatory, right? You, you, you deal with this every day when you're fighting for your clients. And so that to my mind is crucial is, is, is not whether AI and automation, but how do we ensure that the AI and automation is as bias-free as possible and you know, meets equity considerations and that there aren't things being introduced there that actually make it unfair for one group versus another. Right. And you know, we're about at the end of the conversation here, Andrew, and thanks for your thoughts on prognosticating and uh, looking forward. And to sort of like tie it into my question, what would be your advice to the incoming Minister of Citizenship and Immigration? Well, I mean, my advice is that immigration is too important to just leave to the normal processes. So I've been advocating in, re in, in, in recent months that we really need some form of royal commission or a board of inquiry to look at immigration, not just in the short term, but in the longer term. You know, we need to sort of say, you know, what is going to be the impact over the next 10 or 20 years? We know there'll be more automation, there'll be more use of AI. So what kind of immigrants do we need in that kind of context? Do we need as many if, if you know, if, if truck drivers are eventually going to be replaced by autonomous vehicles, do we need as many truck drivers, just for example? And these are issues that intrinsically it's hard for governments to do on the fly. I mean, the, don't get me wrong. I mean, officials are probably thinking about these issues and they're probably doing some good work. But by having an outside commission that can take a longer term perspective and look at these issues and whether it be respect to immigration or the whole sort of area of multicultural anti-racism, these are all complex issues that we need to sort of have some bodies sort of step back much as we did in the 60s with the Bilingualism and Biculturalism Commission because that actually provided some intellectual capital that subsequent governments could draw on in terms of legislation and the like. Any, any final thoughts for the uh, voter heading into the election, you know, with immigration on their mind? I mean, they're looking right now, they're not seeing it in the mainstream media, as, as LJ just asked you, uh, as this is an issue coming up. As someone who's looked at the different political parties, what would you sum up? What, what should they be thinking about if immigration is their issue? Well, I think they should be thinking about what are their concerns? And then how do the political parties propose to respond to those concerns, or if they do at all, uh, you know, both, you know, both the specific proposals as well as those uh, blank spaces on, on, on the comparative table. And I think the other thing that, of course, uh, all voters have to do is that, you know, most voters aren't single issue voters. Mm -hmm. And so in one sense, like, while I deeply care about immigration, I also deeply care about climate issues and COVID relief. And so recognizing that no one party has a perfect response to all the issues that I have to uh, consider when exercising my vote, you have to think about what is, which issues are more important. In some cases, it may be immigration related issues related to family reunification. In other cases, it may be climate change. In other cases, it may be an economic issue. And so voters have to sort of balance those. It, doesn't make it easy, but, you know, life isn't easy, right? Well, on that note, I, I think we, we, we should thank Andrew for taking time this morning, sharing his wisdom and, and again, his resources. We're going to be putting up a link to Andrew's excellent work, I think, in for, especially for the, for the voter who doesn't have 
hours to pour through uh, and control find on each PDF of each party's uh, platform. <laughs> Andrew has done an incredible job making this digestible. And for sure, I'm going to be referring to it uh, before I vote as well. So thank you, Andrew, for taking time. Thank you for all your advocacy. And we look forward to collaborating with you more in the future. Well, thanks very much for the opportunity. Really enjoyed the conversation. I hope it's been useful to your viewers. Absolutely. Thank, thank you. you. Okay, well, well, considering my mind blown, I'm still thinking about all of the, you know, information and all of the opinions that were shared to us by all of our guests today. My thoughts are, I think I'm going to uh, echo Andrew's points is think about the issues that are dear to you that are close to your heart, when you're uh, thinking about who to vote for in the coming elections, six days, essentially. But yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll share some of the links and uh, resources that we've accumulated in the last few days in preparation for recording this episode. They'll be in the description of this video. And thank you so much for listening in for, to this episode. And, you know, doing this extra episode was a pleasure. Uh, you know, it was such a ride listening to such brilliant people. And I hope that you guys learned as much as I did. Absolutely. And I mean... It's going to sound almost stereotype, but you know we we do we have the power of the vote, right? And whether or not uh, you believe in this current system, it is a a, a privilege and I believe a responsibility to uh, show up to your fellow for your fellow Canadians on the twentieth. You know we have a lot of building to do, but they can't really change things if we don't tell them we want the change. So uh, I think one common theme uh, of this show was all our guests saying listen to my perspective, hear me out. And I think one way that we can hear them is by exercising our power vote. And I guess as a final point, uh, Will, uh, there were common points, actually, common thread between the three guests. Uh, it's essentially that you have a seat at the table. We are in Canada. We are fortunate to have a voice. And a lot of people, I understand, they don't use that voice. But keep in mind that a lot of people fight and die for having that voice to be able to sit at the table. So please, please, please exercise your fundamental right and responsibility to vote. On that note, thank you so much for listening in. And we have a lot of stuff in store for you for season two of Imlight. See you in a few. <laughs> See you in a few.